Hi, and welcome to Second Rate Film School. Today we're going to be discussing the history of the infamous band Nickelodeon movie, Cry Baby Lane. Originally premiering on October 28th, 2000, this film was so frightening it caused a flood of angry phone calls from parents across the country claiming the movie was way too scary for children. Subsequently, the movie was banned for over a decade. As the years passed, the film became part of the internet folklore and turned into a cult phenomenon. Soon, people who had never seen the movie were working with people who only had vague recollections to try and track down the movie and see what it was really all about and how it came to be. Well, today, we're going to find the true story behind this hidden Nick flick. To help me shed light on the film are my guests today in their first ever interviews discussing the film at length. First, we have the film's executive producer, co-writer, and director, Peter Lauer. Hello. Then we have executive producer and co-writer, Bob Mittenthal. Hey. And finally, we have director of photography, John Inwood. Welcome to the show, guys. So this is going to be a two-parter to make your viewing experience a little more manageable. Part one will focus on the road leading up to Crybaby Lane, its production, and the movie itself. Part two will then focus on the backlash the film received, its banishment, and the internet fervor that led to its rediscovery, and then the legacy of the movie 21 years on. Well, let's get things started with our exploration of Crybaby Lane, the movie too scary for Nickelodeon. stage you've all worked together on numerous projects over the years but the first one you've all worked together on was Nickelodeon's The Adventures of Pete and Pete so was that where your professional partnerships began? I think we met there right? We did we did. I know John we did but Bob didn't do, do you and I meet on Pete and Pete? No we were like we kind of grew up together you were a PA MTV in the, in the uh, on-air promo department and I was a PA at Nick in the promo department and we had a lot of mutual friends and we just ended up like, you know, kind of hanging out and stuff like that. Um, we were just kind of, it was kind of like a, just a small world of like, you know, cable in New York back in the uh, late eighties. We were, we were like a, a floor apart in the same building at 1133 6th Avenue. Um, Peter and I had been, I think, working on other stuff together too. We were trying to write movies. Um, like there was that, uh, there was Vic Verdi and there was that the practical guide to caring for your cat and all these other sort of things we were messing around with together. Um, you know, meantime, you were like, you know, sort of building your directorial career. Um, John was doing uh, great work, you know, everywhere. And I was just kind of hanging around Nickelodeon trying to, uh, trying to do shows. You a lot of animation. Yeah. I th at the time though, I don't think I'd really gotten into animation. Yet. I don't remember. It was, it was a long time ago, but. Um, I did like, you know, shitty sitcoms for them and stuff like that. So anyway, but we did all work on Pete and Pete. Um, I wrote a couple, John shot them, Peter. Did you ever write any, Peter, or did you just direct them? Well, you and I were hired to, to write one. I, I think it's the only job I've ever been fired from. <laughs> and we, you, we, we, we wrote that, we, we wrote the script about, it was about driver's ed for Pete and Pete. 
and we had the drivers, all the driver's ed teachers would, would they would kind of matriculate to a, a bar, but rather than drinking, you know, booze, they, they all drank milk at this bar. And it was like, they all went to calm down after teaching driver's ed all day long. And then we had like all these action sequences and whatnot, kind of like Crybaby Lane. <laughs> and Chris and Will finally said, no, you're, we're, we're removing you from, from, we're removing your episode. <laughs> Relieved of your command. <laughs> I mean, that's such a shame we didn't get to see that episode. Uh, yeah, The Adventures of Pete and Pete was such a great show and arguably was the most surreal show that Network had on, which is pretty crazy when you really get down to the fact that this is the same network that gave us Ren and Stimpy. It was a great show. I really was, it was a fabulous show. And thankfully, it brought us together professionally anyway. Peter, you were really, you came in most, you know, every shoot that I did with you, you really, you knew your shots and you knew your transitions and you even had a backup plan. Because <laughs> I remember what we did, we did um, that, the, that, um, that very ambitious episode of Pete, of Pete and Pete um, around the pool. Oh, yes. And it was just so ambitious. And frankly, I could not keep up with the number of shots that we had. And then I, I, there was a point where I, I feel, completely felt like I failed you. I wasn't able to pull it off in time. But you had a backup plan right away. We'll do a shot of the radio. We'll cut to the radio. Okay, great. We got the shot of the radio. But anyway, um, but it was really inspired. Like, so so we really, like when we did the movie, we had the benefit of having done a couple of, several episodes of Pete and Pete under, Pete and Pete was like going to war. I mean, it was serious. We had, we had to do everything in a 12 hour day because of the kids and the kids were in and out of school all the time. You were under constant duress, constant pressure. And it was very ambitious. And all the directors and myself, we were very, very ambitious. So by the time we came and did Crybaby Lane, which was, it was, we used to joke actually, like um, my gaffer when I, we, we would joke that it was like Pete and Pete at night with stunts and animals and moonshine <laughs> all those things and and there was there were met several um there were several shots where i mean i almost got taken out a couple times yeah i was thinking about when we, the one where we tried to kill you I, I there's there's a couple of stories that we'll get to andrew if, if you want to hear them oh yeah stories of near-death experiences and drinking moonshine on the set of a nickelodeon movie is for sure a topic that i and the audience will want to hear about well, on that note, we have now fast forward to the late 1990s. So now we're at the beginning of pre-production. So Peter and Bob, what was the genesis behind the premise for the movie? Well, it's based, I mean, it's a, it's a true, it's a true folk story from where I grew up. And, and, and it, I, I remember this thing that I grew up with. So I grew up in a, a little farm town in Ohio, Trontagony, Ohio, 300 people. And, um, and my brother, my, I had an older brother who used to torture me that the character of, one of, of Carl was based on. And um, he would tell me, he was like 16 when I was 10. And he would tell me like, cause he could drive. So he would tell me talking about, about he would drive out, to the, drive out to this place, people his age, they would drive out to this place called Crybaby Lane. And it was an abandoned farmhouse. And at midnight, you, the, the idea was to stay there all night long. And at midnight, you would hear the cries of a dead baby from this one tree. You could hear from this tree. And he told, he, he told me the story, that this was a thing, a real thing. And I believed him, you know. 
and uh, and he told me the backstory. There was like a good twin, evil twin. I think I think he told me that part. Also, made it up, Bob. I don't remember, but um, but anyway, that that's where that's where it came from. It came from Tontogany, this little town. This was it was a story that my brother told me, and only when we went back to shoot two days in Tontogany, Ohio, did I realize that in fact it was a real story that a lot of people knew about. And I think the story is actually like uh, in other places too. It's sort of like a, you know, a sort of uh, rural legend. Um, <laughs> a, you know, I think there's one in North Carolina that I saw on the internet. Um, but yeah, this was definitely the inspiration for the story. It was, it was, this was Peter's vision. And, uh, you know, uh, John and I just kind of came, we came along for the ride yeah. <laughs> and to, to support it. But it's like, you know, uh, you know, you and I wrote it together, but you were definitely the auteur of, uh, of the film, no, I just I don't know about that, but it, but it was, but it did. I mean, it certainly began with my brother. So, given your ties to them, was this project always intended for Nickelodeon? The, the, the way this came about was Nickelodeon approached Bob and I to do something about they wanted something in the vein of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, but for kids. That was how it's. They they came to us because we had tried to do something else in a similar vein with Nickelodeon, like a pilot that didn't quite, that didn't go, I guess. Well, we had actually pitched it to Nick Movies when they first kind of came into being. And it was the worst pitch I've ever had in my life. We were, you and I were pitching it to Debbie Bisi, who was running Nick Movies. And she got a phone call and she just said like, she was the only one in the meeting. And she said like, um, I got to take this call. I'll, I'll be right back, but keep going. <laughs> That's always a good sign. <laughs> it was just like it was just like insane that like they wanted us to, she wanted us to just keep telling the story to know to each other, I guess. And she just sort of um, so we didn't think we would sell it. Well, and we didn't. We, then we, we and then we we took it to we took it to New Line. We pitched it at New Line as a seance. Yeah, we pitched it a couple times, I think. And, and it disappeared for like a year. And then somebody called me. A woman from Nickelodeon called me, and she had dug it up. It was not always intended to be for whatever reason, a $10 million movie for Nickelodeon Paramount. And then this, someone called me up and said, can you do it for like $800,000 as a TV movie? So was that an issue for you going from envisioning this as a $10 million theatrically released feature to a TV movie made with a less than a tenth of the budget? We just said yes. <laughs> so we'll figure it out later because we just wanted to make it. Fair enough. You know, at least the movie gets to get made in the end of the day. So, though, with the budget crunch, were there any scenes that you had to cut out of the script because of that? No, Bobby, when they got back to, they, they, I think they contacted me first, this woman whose name I can't remember, young woman at Nickelodeon, she was like an assistant there, I believe, and she was going back through old scripts looking for stuff to do, they wanted to do a TV movie thing at Nickelodeon, and she re you know, she exhumed crybaby lane and called me up and said could you do this as a tv movie for a tenth of the intended budget but don't lose any of the set pieces it was like don't lose it you know like don't lose any of the car chases don't any of the explosions any, don't, don't like keep all that stuff but cut the budget by 90 percent you know so so really there's not we did everything that was in the original script except there was a skinny dipping sequence we had we had a thing where they were they humiliated andrew all the, the Girl Scouts got him into a skinny dipping situation and they got him basically naked and they started pelting him with mud or something like that. 
Yeah, I mean, we sort of combined it with like the bull scene, I think. You know, when he when he he landed in like the mud or the pig shit and had to take his clothes off, and then the girls all shut up and laughed at him. Obviously, nothing would have been shown in the, even in the theatrical released version, but that does lead to my question of how you guys dealt with standards and practices. So while you didn't actually have to cut out any major set pieces or moments, were there any challenges you didn't foresee with your original script now that this is going to be on a TV and dealing with a much different set of rules? You know, I still do a lot of kids' TV and a lot of Nickelodeon TV, and, like, the, the, the standards and practices have gotten really, really, you know, they're just, like, they're much more... Uh, sort of professionalized and they just there's just things they just won't let you do and I remember you know we have smoking we have alcohol which they won't let you do and we have kids riding bikes with no helmets and I remember they came to us at a certain point and they said like they gotta wear helmets and Peter was just like no way it will ruin the whole movie if you put helmets on those kids these kids would never wear helmets it's just not believable you know, like, you know, Carl's insane. He's not gonna wear a helmet. And so like the compromise was we'll have them wear wool hats <laughs> and, and they bought it and they said, okay. You, you know, there's the scene where somebody goes up to, they knock on a door trying to find somebody else. And the woman answers the door and she's got the baby and she's smoking. Yeah, that's my daughter, the baby. Daughter. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And she said, and the kid says, you're going to kill that baby. You know you're going to kill that. You're killing your baby. And how do we, we softened that, though, to something else? Um, you changed it to... Cookie dough? That's going to kill the baby. You're out back in the Rambler. It's ecology night. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a great little moment that I really love because it just feels so real. You get the idea that this happens a lot. This girl comes over to visit her friend often, and she's always trying to peddle her cookies in some way, shape, or form. So this time, it's the safer alternative to the mom's homemade cookies. And this mom is just tired of it and just kind of hand waves away. And it's like, whatever, I'm done. You know, and that's pretty cool because we didn't get to see exasperated parents like this a lot in 90s and early 2000s kids entertainment, especially on TV. And it just makes it feel that much more realistic. That's especially good because this acts like an anchor point to the movie to make it more real, which really helps when the supernatural elements start kicking in later on. This was what it was like to have parents, you know, as someone, as kids who grew up in the like 60s and 70s, it's like the parents didn't really give a shit about us. They had their own lives, you know. Unsupervised. We were unsupervised. I mean, John has stories about like going from roof to roof and over on Brooklyn buildings, you know, when he was a kid. We'd get into the subway tunnels, into the docks. We'd scale up the cables to the Brooklyn Bridge towers. Good God. <laughs> get high and climb back down. <laughs> well, good to know Child John was a whole lot cooler and more badass than I am even now. Um, though, rounding back to the budget, um, given the fact that this would turn out to be a pretty grueling schedule and the crew couldn't have been paid a lot with this budget, was it difficult sourcing people to work on it? This thing was so low budget that we couldn't, I mean, we couldn't find people to work on it. I called in a lot of favors for, to get my crew together. I, know. I mean, guys, guys who I got work with a lot, they knew that they had to serve time with me on this. Yeah, and pe people were like, you know, I, I, it was Ter Teresa uh, Mastro Piero. I went to to, to, uh, to be the production designer, I'm not to knock who, you know, uh, Jody who did it, who did a great job. In fact, I, I would give her credit because she had the guts to do it. But T Teresa, who I was working with for two seasons on another series, was like, I can't do it. It's like, there's not, I, 
it's just that there's nothing to work with here. And there's just no money. There's just not, no resources. We just, we cobbled this thing together. It's, it's amazing that it got done. And I mean, this is a good time as any, I guess, to mention that even though you had a pretty small budget, the movie's locations and sets look amazing. You really get the feel of a small Midwestern town, Rust Belt kind of feel to it here. So what was the process like trying to find a place to shoot this? And were you a little worried about the budget? We were so constrained. The, the neighborhood that we shot, for example, was a condemned neighborhood. We literally could not find, we couldn't afford anything. And we were, we were out scouting in New Jersey for this neighborhood. And we would given up. We couldn't find anything. And we were driving back when I it was, it was like, it was like the gloaming, you know, where it was, the sun was setting. I saw out of the corner of my eye, I saw like a, a, a an A-frame rooftop or a couple of them. I thought, what's that? You know, we're just desperate. We turned around in the van and we go down, we found this little neighborhood, which is where we ultimately shot. And we got it, we could afford it because it was basically free because they were gonna bulldoze the whole thing, it was condemned. We, we shot the whole movie with no electricity, no water, no heat in this, this, this condemned neighborhood. It was miserable. <laughs> I think that neighborhood, they found something like toxic waste or lead in the water or something. And that's because the buildings were not that dilapidated. You know, it was like one of those, um, those, uh, those, those sites, what do they call them? Um, Superfund. Superfund sites, you know, like, like the Gowanus Canal near where I live. Love Canal, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it was bizarre. Yeah, no electricity. So we have a script, crew. And now we have the town. So the last part of the puzzle here is the cast. And I have to say, for a TV kids movie, the acting is really good in this. Um, everyone's just great, but I think the first cast member we should focus on is Frank Langell as Ben. He's great, but from what I understand, he wasn't your first choice for the role. You were actually aiming for Tom Waits originally. Is that true? Well, yeah. We went to, In fact, I, I, I went through my garage and I found the old uh, my book for the movie. And even in the storyboards, I drew Tom Waits, that guy in, this, in the dark suit. That's, that's my version, my cartoon version of Tom Waits. <laughs> did Tom Waits turn us down or did Appleby not let us um, offer him? No, no. We, 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 remember, we wrote, a, we wrote a letter to him um, explaining our, you know, how, how, why we would like him to do it and how we, how we thought he was perfect for it. And his agent responded enthusiastically but he was on tour and i don't know whether you know where the being on tour part uh, was it became a problem or what or the money that we were offering no doubt was crappy for him it was good money i mean you know <laughs> we didn't have anyone booked for the role when we started production you know, because we, we, you know, we had a schedule to keep to and it was just like, all right, we're going to start and you better find somebody. We had to cast a name, but then they put forward Frank Langella, I believe. And I, I, went, I went and I had dinner with him at his apartment. And the first thing he said to me was, I have no idea what to do with this character. I don't know who, I don't know who this guy is. And myself at the time being uh, ignorant, I, you know, it, I didn't know how to respond to that. So I just tried to, I just started to explain the character to him who was based on my uncle Ben. And, uh, it was just totally the wrong thing to do. I should never have done that, but I didn't know at the time. And, uh, and he never had a, he never had a clue what to do with the character, which is 
and I'm not faulting Frank Langella, he's a fantastic actor, obviously. But Bob and I, previously to that, had been out to Los Angeles. We did cast, remember we did auditions at that Holiday Inn off of Sunset Boulevard? And, and we, we had three actors who were not names, but they were great, they were great. So we, we, had a, well, we had an embarrassment of riches with actors to play this part. But then we want to get J.K. Simmons and it's like, nobody knows who he is. Yeah, I, I had worked with him on, on, on that HBO show pr previous to Crybaby Lane. Yeah, he would have been, he would have been fantastic. The, the, so we, we had a handful of actors who would have been great, but Nickelodeon insisted ultimately on Frank Langella because they wanted to get Entertainment Tonight on set. <laughs> And ultimately, not only did Entertainment Tonight never show up, Nickelodeon Magazine never showed up. <laughs> it's, it's if any, anyone watching Nickelodeon would give a shit who Frank Langella is, you know, he's great, but that's the fact, you know. Yeah, I can say as someone who was the target age at the time, I had no idea who the hell Frank Langella was. If they really wanted someone with star power us kids could get behind, they should have gotten Mark Summers from Double Dare. That would have gotten my attention. Yeah, you should have gotten him. <laughs> Just having watched the movie again yesterday, and I don't think I don't think I watched it since we edited it. So this was like an inspiration for me to actually sit down and and um, experience it on YouTube. <laughs> I think he, I think he was really good. I think he, you know. You know, he sort of has that that quality of just like being like, you know, a fuck up, you know, and there's that line. I was going to actually send it to you guys in an email where it's like, I know it sounds bad. It is bad. Uh, I'm a bad undertaker. That was a great line. I think you, you wrote that line, Bob. That was one of, one of your many. I don't know if I wrote that line. It sounds, it sounds like a Peter line. Anyway, um, I did want to say that, like, we did we started shooting and we didn't have Frank cast and there was all this pressure and they were going to shut us down if we didn't get somebody that was a name. And on the first night we were out in the cornfield and I like went back to the trailer where we were or the, to the, the production office and I said, is there a PA who can take me to the hospital? <laughs> and I said, I said, it's very quietly. I didn't want to like cause a fuss. But I really thought that I was like having a brain aneurysm and I was going to die. And I thought it was going to be very bad luck if I died, um, you know, on the first night of shooting. God, could you imagine if you had actually died while making it? That would have made this movie seem even more cursed than it already was. People would have been like, this movie is so evil. I hear the writer died. <laughs> yeah. uh, I didn't die. It turned out to be uh, migraines. And uh, I've, uh, it's all fine. <laughs> Well, even though Frank was the big name of the movie, obviously this is a kid's movie, so the kids are the stars of it. And I have to say, they're really good in this. There's not a single case of bad kid acting to be found in this. I think the performances are pretty strong, though. I think that the kids are really, they're good. They're pretty damn good. Yeah. Um, Andrew and uh, Carl were really good. But the girls, some of the girls were very quite good too. Yeah, the, the, the one who played the the main the main kind of bad girl who turns bad, you know, um, Kathy, the one with the, the spider on the tongue. Yes, she was good. Yeah, I looked her up. This was her whole her only credit. I know. I was looking up the credit. Yeah, many of them like I think even Lark Lark had a little bit of a career, but yeah, he did uh, a lot of video game stuff. We did we did not launch a lot of careers with this film. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Melissa Joan Hart, otherwise known as Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and I gotta say it's good to be here on Halloween weekend hosting SNCC. 
Why, you might ask? Well, I'm glad you did. Because tonight, Nickelodeon brings you the world premiere of an original movie called Cry Baby Lane. It's scary, spooky, and special, all that stuff we teenage witches go for. I, for one, am pretty psyched. So, pop up some popcorn, get a blanket to hide under, and hmm, maybe one more thing. Some company on the couch. <laughs> Here comes Nick's original movie, Cry Baby Lane. Well, this brings us to the movie itself. I'm going to talk about the production of the movie and my review at the same time, since most of the talking points are intertwined. So the movie opens up with Frank Langella recounting the movie's version of the urban legend of Crybaby Lane. There was a farmer whose wife gave birth to twins. But something was terribly wrong. So right off the bat, we can see that this doesn't look or sound or feel like a typical Nickelodeon movie. And that's what makes it so awesome. I'm sure this scene alone accounted for a good chunk of the parental complaints. So finding your typical Midwest town was one thing, but what specifically were you looking for in this house and what was the process like finding it? When we were looking for location, we were shooting it in New Jersey for Ohio, but New Jersey does not look like Ohio. And the farm towns are definitely very different. They're different in their layout and the houses are different. And I had, and I wanted the house to look a certain way like this, like farmhouses that were a band I used to explore when I was a kid and uh, out in the country there. So I had my, I, we're, Bob and I were in New York and I called my sister who was back in Toledo, Ohio. And I said, would you mind like, just go for a drive back to where we grew up and look around for a house that looks like this. And I, I faxed her a picture of an Ohio farmhouse. So she goes, so I get a, I, I get a, a call from her, a fax or something saying, I think I found your house and I'm freaked out. So she's, she faxes me a picture of, of a farmhouse. Like it's perfect, it looks exact, it's exactly what I had in mind. It's an like, so A-frame clabbered, you know, Ohio farmhouse with overgrown trees all over it, you know. Get her on the phone and she tells me, so I, I drive out, I drove out there with my baby daughter in the car seat in the back of my minivan and I thought this, this place looks promising. So I drove up the you know, remnants of a gravel driveway. And I got out with my camera and I'm taking a picture and I'm getting freaked out. Something, I don't know what it is. I'm just, it's freaking me out. And I took a picture and I ran back to the car and I got the hell out of there. This is what my sister, sister tells me. So, but it's a great place. And somehow or another, we contact through the locations department, we were able to get that abandoned house. We were able to shoot that abandoned house for the opening title sequence. So we go, so John, as you recall, we go to Tontagony, Ohio, 300 people, place has not changed in 30 years. And we go there and I'm, we're, our little crew is assembling, our mini crew is assembling in the cross, the cross streets of the main street of town at this carryout. And the carryout has a little lunch counter where I used to go when I was a kid. And I go there and, I'm, and, I'm, and somebody's asking me, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're shooting a couple of days for this movie. It's a Nickelodeon movie. Oh, really? What's it called? Crybaby Lane. Oh, yeah, Crybaby Lane. Yeah, you're doing a movie about that. I'm like, yeah. Oh, we're going to shoot in it. Like, well, we found a house over here on Portage Road, and the woman behind the counter went white. And she's like, that's it. That's the place. So, it, it, according to a local Tontagony, Ohio legend, we shot the actual house. Now, I wanted to see if I could still find that the house was still standing. And while Google was no help, the lovely people of Tahogany, Ohio, were very helpful. 
Um, sadly, the house has seemed to be lost to time and or torn down because no one can really pinpoint where its exact location was. Though showing you the ever-evolving nature of urban legends, that was actually the second Crybaby Lane house. The original one burned down in 1964. So for the record, that means there were two Crybaby Lane houses in the same town and they're both gone now. Coincidence or something else? Moving on. Now, while the house is already visually interesting, most of the interesting elements come from John's camera work. You know, it looks like something out of a European indie movie, not a Nickelodeon movie. So, John, what was planning and shooting the sequence like? Well, I mean, I came from indies, and then my whole career changed when I, um, in between indies, I, I would work on Nickelodeon promos, and then I found out that, hey, they were looking for a, a new DP for Pete, The Adventures of Pete and Pete. And um, they actually sent me out to shoot some promotional stuff, but they were kind of checking me out in relation to the possibility of me taking over. So then I took over, and um, I think that the second episode I shot was with Peter, Halloweeny, one of the greatest episodes uh, in Pete and Pete, and ever, ever, ever. But the show really changed my whole career. I mean, I love doing indies and everything, but um, I, there were so many great young uh, directors on that show, including Peter and others, like um, uh, friends of ours, like Chris Koch and Adam Bernstein, who, and all, all of them have gone on to have incredible careers, but the, they taught me a lot. Um, and Pete, and Peter was particularly inspired and he would come in with a plan. You know, he would really design a scene and design the blocking and design the transitions. And I learned so much from, from uh, Peter. And so I'm sure that when we went and did this, Peter had in mind many of these shots. So I could only take partial credit because you were, Peter, you were really, you came in most, you know, every shoot that I did with you, you really, you knew your shots and you knew your transitions and you even had a backup plan. <laughs> so was the Ohio stuff shot before or after the principal filming? I, th I think we shot the Ohio stuff afterwards, right? Yeah. So we were able to, to be rested and then we got into it. And I, I'm, I can't believe how much we did at night in that town. And I'm so happy with how it all looks. With, with SAG breathing down our necks because because we were using kids and, and we were definitely pushing them beyond the limit. And Nickelodeon breathing down our necks too. After that very disturbing intro, we meet our main characters, Andrew and his older brother, Carl. The duo are visiting Ben the Undertaker and as is implied, this is a pretty frequent occurrence for them, hearing some of his creepy stories. Carl is amazed, but the more timid Andrew points out that it's time for them to go home. We now get a scene of the two brothers riding their bikes through the opening credits of the movie, and this is where we get another great sequences of John's shots, and here the musical score for the film, which is the perfect combination of the bounciness and spookiness that you associate with Halloween, especially when you get the choir-like vocals at one point. Later that night, Andrew has a nightmare of Crybaby Lane and goes to his parents' room to tell them about it. We get a hint that this is a reoccurring issue for them, and his mother then chastises Carl for taking Andrew to Ben's. The following day, Andrew meets up with his friend Hall, who's a Lord of the Rings fan, something not often seen in pop culture prior to the Jackson movies, which would not be released until the following December. Hall, fun fact, is played by Mark John Jeffries, who has had quite the career for himself, 
But for the purpose of this channel and, and jokes for my usual co-host, I will point out that he's the son in the Haunted Mansion movie and had a small role in Spider-Man 2. Work out, plenty of rest, you know, eat your green vegetables. That's what my mom is always saying. I just never actually believed her. Later, Carl decides to enlist Andrew in helping him scare some of the girls from their school, one of which is Kathy, a girl who Andrew has a crush on. They decide to use the crybaby lane story to scare the girls by holding a mock saint at the town's graveyard. Here they have quite possibly the worst luck depicted in any medium ever, when coincidentally... They actually picked the twins' grave to do the seance at. While setting up their cassette player, remember those? Carl pulls up a hefty root that's next to the tombstone. That night, the kids perform their seance and soon realize they might have done too good of a job. The kids hear the fabled crying of the bad twin and notice a huge amount of worms on the ground. Sufficiently spooked, they run away. Soon, though, the audience sees a dog being possessed by an evil spirit. Now, I should point out that worms become a signifier of the what is soon to be revealed evil twin's presence. Now, there's something I'm curious about here. The Humane Society obviously had to be on set for the dog and the soon-to-be-seen bull, but you often hear in movies like Shawshank Redemption that bugs and insects are looked after by the Humane Society as well. Is that actually the case? We had to have a worm wrangler, and they had to have somebody from the like Humane Society to make sure that the worms weren't mistreated. You know, and it was like, you know, after like the shoot, it's like the guy who brought the worms just like threw them away. I mean, it was just like, <laughs> you know, they're not like pet worms, not trained worms, they're just worms. <laughs> well, the worms have been wrangled. Now I'm with the story. So the next day, Ben arrives at the graveyard on business and we meet quite possibly one of the best characters to ever be put on film, Gary the Gravedigger. I was in a dream. I was in the Price is Right. Gary Perez. That's my favorite. He's he's my favorite. He is so funny. First, I got to go to the gas station. I got to get the gas. I got to put the gas in the back hole. I got to get my wallet. I got to get the money out of the wallet. That was totally Bob's. I, I got to get the money out of my wallet. I, 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 I pull that out. I'll, Bob, I do that all, all the time. I, I copy it all the time in different situations with Leslie. So like. <laughs> Uh, yeah, when he, when he, when I was watching yesterday with my, um, my 13 year old is turning 14 tomorrow. He, he loved it. He loved it. But uh, I, I got so excited when I saw that carrot with it, when he drives up and there, the backhoe's there. Cause I knew I loved that scene so much. He's sleeping in the backhoe. Gary is a lazy guy who has excuses for literally everything and makes the simplest task seem insurmountable. I love the banter he has here with Ben and what it really takes to do his job, supposedly. As the scene continues, Ben and Gary find evidence of the boy's prank, which points to Carl as he had written his name on the cassette tape. We then see the now-possessed dog, who as Ben usually describes as being a sweetheart, become a vicious animal and attack Gary. Ben helps Gary home, and despite the fact he's going on about how much in pain he is, Ben notices that there's no bite mark on Gary's leg, to which Gary complains he just needs workman's comp. Another nice moment to add on how lazy he is. Gary blames the whole situation on bad luck due to the root being pulled at the tombstone. This causes Ben to leave puzzled about the entire situation. Ben visits the boys to try and get to the bottom of what's going on, when we actually get a pretty interesting moment. 
We find that the boy's mother already dislikes Ben for a never-revealed mistake he supposedly made with her grandmother's funeral. I don't like you. I guess you're really upset with me about your mom's funeral, huh? Well, look, it was an honest mistake, and She wasn't presentable. Don't mess around with me, Ben. I love this because, one, it's a good joke. It plays into the whole fact that he's a poor undertaker. And two, it gives a more concrete reason to keep him from being able to talk to the boys and why the mom is so angry later on in the movie. The scene then shifts to the girls from the prior night worried about what happened before becoming possessed as well. Later at dinner, Andrew gets into an argument with his mother, feeling like he's a coward and blaming her for it. I was thinking it was your fault. My fault? To which the father has quite possibly the greatest response ever. There's something in the yard. Andrew then storms up to his room and decides to sneak out. Carl, being impressed by this, follows suit. We now see the possessed girls cause a driver to crash his car. Unharmed, of course, this is still a Nickelodeon movie. As the radio announces a strange case of rabies and animals across the town and a bunch of rowdy kids. Soon, though, we see that adults are also as affected as the mailman is seen destroying the mailbox of the family. Hours later, Andrew and Carl have ridden to the railroad tracks where they try and race to beat an oncoming train. Carl makes it while Andrew is stuck on the other side of the passing train, now separated for the time being. While out of visual sight of each other, Carl is teleported to the graveyard, where he is then sucked underground to meet the evil twin who is creepy as hell. This results in Carl's possession. Once reunited, the duo continue on with Carl telling Andrew he wants them to go meet Kathy as he leads his brother into an unknown danger. Meanwhile, the boy's mother discovers the two are missing and demands her husband go out looking for them. They're gone! And? Go find them! I probably should mention now that the father is my other favorite character in this movie, just because of this scene alone. Oh, dad, Steve Mellor. Guy is amazing. He was great. He was so funny. I, I, I worked with him on an HBO pilot series uh, where he played every episode, he played the villain, and every, like a different villain every episode. And he was great. And, and he, he, he did this thing, uh, did Crybaby Lane, and I thought he was, he was very understated. Yeah, I love all these moments here as a kid I wouldn't have picked up on. For instance, when the mom's not in the room, I love how he switches from monster trucks to some fashion show with models in it. It's just so fun. I'm so glad you say that because he, he's, he's my favorite as well. And, and he's my favorite in everything that he has ever done. He doesn't do much. He is great. He is great. I, I cast him in a, in a pilot for Adult Swim called Sperm Boat. <laughs> about, about a... Uh, uh, a cruise ship, and he plays the ba the bad guy in this, and he's so fucking amazing. And somebody at Adult, uh, adult Swim, when they, when they declined to pick the thing up for series, oh, they they claim they're still working on it. Um, was uh, they, they just they just didn't like that character? I'm like, how could you? Myself and the writer, how could you not? He's brilliant. He's the perfect skeptic father for this type of movie. He's not like the typical goosebumps or are you afraid of the dark parent who's like, monsters aren't real. No, he's just a burnt out father who's kind of just done with everything. This monologue of why he shouldn't go out looking for his missing kids is perfect. And again, it's something you didn't really get to see in movies like this at the time. Yeah, I could drive all night long, never find him, maybe fall asleep behind the wheel. But what kind of message would that send? What message are we sending? <laughs> also, this is his last scene. We never see him again. So in my head canon, when he actually had to go out and find the boy's lost bike, 
he did fall asleep behind the wheel and died. So kind of ruins the movie's happy ending, but it's still fun. Yeah, this really just goes back to the earlier scene with the mother holding her baby. It's just like a real moment. Nothing sinister. When Peter, when, when we were writing the movie, Peter and I were both um, parents of young children. And, um, you know, both our sons were both kind of like, uh, not your sort of like uh, cookie cutter kids. And I had a young daughter too. And I think we were just kind of like, this, like making this movie was a chance to sort of like, like sleep in a Motel 6 and like be away from like the duties of being a parent a little bit, you know? And that was sort of like, we were, I think we were both kind of like that character kind of ca captured me to, you know, just like finding excuses to not like be like the, the good parent, the involved parent, just like whatever you have to do to rationalize it. I remember showing this to a friend. They actually thought this meant he was possessed. And again, no, he's just burnt out. I mean, I'm not a father yet, but I can imagine kind of checking out real quick if Carl and Andrew were my kids too. I think we had written a version once where the, where they had taken the dad. I don't remember. Yeah. We, wrote, we wrote a lot of different things. <laughs> it actually would have been pretty interesting to see the effects of the possession on the father character because the adults we see possessed are pretty much just no-name extras. We've never seen them before, so we really don't get the stakes with them necessarily. That would have definitely died off the scare factor and probably traumatized a few more kids, but come on, you were already going to get banned anyway, so you might as well have went for the gold. Anyways, back with Andrew and Carl, the duo arrives at a barn where Andrew falls into what I hope is mud and is forced to strip down to his underwear as Carl said he would go find him some dry clothes to put on. Suddenly, the girls appear pelting what I think is fruit at Andrew, and he is then chased out of the barn by a bull. So what was working with the bull like? Did you have any trouble with it? That, that, that bull, that little bull, though, that's, that was, whose name was Crazy, her name was Crazy, was, was, was a, a, not a bull, but she was a mom, and she was a beefalo. She was half buffalo, half cow. But she had the crazy, dead-looking face, like skull face, and she had the big horns, and she had attitude because the farmer told us, well, because she's half buffalo, half cow, she's smart and wild. And if, and if another cow or whatever gets between her and her calf, she will jump over the back of the cow or gore them. That, that was a dangerous animal. And the, the scene that we shot with it nearly went south. It actually didn't involve me, but we were, we were lining up that shot where we shot it in separation. Um, so we shot Carl's side and, and I did a handheld shot at him. I operated all, mo most of the shots. But um, when we were turning around and shooting the bull, getting the bull all ready, it was in a pen just outside the barn. And I, um, Peter and I talked about where we we're gonna take an, a little AES, we shot it in 16 millimeter and we, would put, we were gonna put it in the stall, not in the stall, in the runway, low on the ground, and get a low, uh, dramatic, low wide angle shot of the bull running past. Great, awesome. So we have the camera, we've got it placed. We've got three cameras, I've got, I'm, pan, I'm doing the pan shot and there's another shot at the other end. And so we're ready. And I send my assistant over um, to get ready to roll the camera. Cause it's just with olden times, 16 millimeter had to actually press the, the start button on the camera. So he's in, in the runway when there's a commotion and a confusion and the bull appears at the end of the runway 
and is looking at the camera assistant and about ready to charge start and he starts i think he started the charge and my assistant like leaped over the fence and just made it as the bull went by you go pile of pig shit in <laughs> a pile of pig shit probably so that was one close call very very close call so Andrew begins running away from the barn, knowing that there is something deeply wrong with Carl. He soon arrives in the backyard to try and steal some clothes, where he sees a bunch of drunk, possessed guys grilling. Doesn't seem too bad until this happens. Damn, you guys blew up a boat. That makes this movie so much more cool. Yeah, I think it's also a nice touch that the possessed destructive behavior is appropriately bigger in scale as they get older. So kids have minor pranks while the adults are blowing stuff up and, as we see later, have homicidal rage. So quick question, though. What was it like filming the boat scene? I didn't actually remember the scene with the fishermen when I was rewatching the movie. And I was just like, what, why are the, what's going on there? And then it's just like, they blew up the boat. <laughs> We found the boat and the people we were filming it, like we were using extras, and they were like, yeah, that, that used to be my boat. I used to own that boat. After stealing some clothes, Andrew makes his way to Ben's for answers. Ben is finishing up a funeral, and we see the father of the family looks pretty familiar. What? Here, look, see, it's all itemized. I never asked for cold cuts. Oh, yeah, you have again. Yep, Jim Gaffigan plays this very short and non-comedic role. So now, Peter, you would work later with Jim Gaffigan again on his show, directing nearly a third of the episodes. So is that a coincidence, or are you partially responsible for his discovery? No, no, well, I, 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 it's a huge exaggeration to say I discovered Jim Gaffigan, but I did find him before he had done television. I, I was working at MTV, and I would go out, and I would do comedy, I would go around comedy clubs in New York looking for talent to do something with. And I saw Jim at the comedy cellar and I guess he was just starting. Um, I found out in years since that he was kind of just starting out. And, um, and I did something, I did two things with him. I did something else with him before Cry Baby Lane, just some kind of a commercial with him. I, put, I, I cast him in it. And, and then Cry Baby Lane, which obviously is not a comedy role, it's barely a role at all, you know. He was really good in it, though. He was good. Like most comedians, he's really good when he's playing something darker. Like comedians are always good at playing dark. I, I ran into him on a train a couple, uh, like ten years afterwards, and like engaged him in conversation. And I think he he was like, I think he he didn't want to talk to me. He was just like, okay, yeah. I thought I was like some stalker or something like that. I said, no, Bob from Crybaby Lane. Then <laughs> he really didn't want to talk to you. <laughs> Sadly, this is all we get to see of Jim, so no great comedy bits with him in it, but a man can dream. A man can dream. Ben and Andrew discuss what's been going on in the town, with Andrew confessing to their messing around with the grave the previous night, but that their chants were only pig Latin. Confused as why messing with the good twin's grave would cause the bad twin's spirit to be unleashed, Ben reveals that he was actually the Undertaker back in 1969. There was a mistake. And? The bodies got put into the wrong graves. The good son was buried out in the field, and the evil one was put in the grave where you had your seance last night. So, way to go, Ben. Your incompetence has doomed us all. Andrew's mom then arrives and angrily takes him home while blaming Ben for everything. And again, 
given the fact that she has found her underage son in this creepy man's house and he's wearing clothes of an adult man and is dirty, this is actually pretty understated, but you know, whatever. On the drive home, Andrew tries convincing his mom of what's going on, but the mother reveals that Carl had already confessed to what had happened that night. Once home, Carl apologizes to Andrew, and he then gets his confirmation that Carl is in fact possessed. Meanwhile, Ben goes to Gary's home to find him preparing for a date, which does indeed show he faked his injury to get out of work. A nice touch here is that Gary is using Carl's Walkman, which he said he would put in the Lost and Found, to play music for his date. Ben ignores Gary's scheme to ask him a follow-up question about the remark about the root being bad luck. What did you mean about bad luck? They say every grave has like a weed or a root that grows out of the soul of the dead guy. If you cut the weed, you cut the soul loose, okay? That's an interesting reversal of the typical, the kid reads a spell book or something like that to raise the dead. It's a good twist, and I give it props to it. Soon after, a possessed Hall arrives and knocks Ben out, stealing his class ring in a nod to Hall's love for the Lord of the Rings. Come, my precious. Meanwhile, a possessed Carl breaks into the bathroom that Andrew's showering in, intending to cause him to become possessed. We actually get a really creepy shot of Carl's glowing eyes in the mirror, but we see that Andrew anticipated this and has already snuck out the window. Andrew finds a weakened Ben, who tells him what he needs to do to stop this madness. He tells him he must go to the good twin's grave at Crybaby Lane and release his spirit to counteract the evil twin's spirit. Helped by Ben's dopey nephew Kenneth, the duo drive off in the hearse to go find the grave. On the way to Crybaby Lane, the duo get involved with the possessed sheriff who attempts to chase them down and run them off the road. So how difficult was it filming this chase scene between the hearse and the cop car? We were doing a shot, of course, low angle and uh, camera on the, on the ground by the side of the road, hearse coming at us, pursued by the police car. So of course I want the camera like as close to the road as possible. And um, we make an adjustment. It was going to be a lock off. So it just it wasn't even going to be on it. And then we made an adjustment where like I was going to have to operate it. So I said, well, let's, let's, let's put a cone next to the camera so that the stunt driver who was working on some deal, I mean, he pulled off some amazing stuff like, like the, uh, the pickup, um, you know, going into the ditch um, was pretty, pretty awesome. But so we we're doing the, one of these shots of the sequence. And um, so I decided, okay, I'm going to have to operate. And I turned to my key grip, uh, Ben Wolf, who's <laughs> been with me a lot of years. And I said, listen, grab, grab a hold of my belt. And if you think he's coming too close, just pull me out of there, right? <laughs> so he goes, you got it. <laughs> so sure enough, we're op I'm operating it. And I'm saying, wow, this is looking great. It's looking, it's kind of close. It's looking, <laughs> pulls me out. Car comes by, knocks the cone over. Knocks the cone over, which is two inches from the camera. That's how close it was. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of hairy things like that. There was one other, there, in that sequence, towards the end of the sequence, um, Kenneth Lark is driving and Andrew says turn right right so we do this whole sequence where he's going to go through the trees and uh, you know we do uh, we lay some track down we do a nice dolly shot and we you know we're, we're consulting with the with the uh, stunt driver 
he knows his path. I've got a, we've got, maybe we've got a second camera. We do it. We do it several times. He drives through, you know, through, you know, he's, he's actually digging up the earth a lot, but he flies through. We do it three or four times from different angles. And um, by then it's about five in the morning and um, the sun's starting to come up. And I realized, shit, we need a POV. We got to have a POV. Or Peter and I decide we, we need a POV, but the sun is, you know, dawn is coming. So uh, I decide, okay, I'm going to, let's, let's just do it. Let's make it happen. Guerrilla filmmaking. I said, give me the camera. And I, I hop in the passenger seat next to the stunt driver. And I say, all right, uh, give me the camera. And at the, at the last moment, he's about to go. He's done it th three or four times seamlessly perfect okay uh i said you know what give me my little monitor i had a little monitor that was battery operated and i put it between my knees and i took my eye off the eyepiece and i and i operated off i said okay go he goes flying through the trees flying through the trees and he goes right into the fucking tree square on the camera goes that would, would have been like this side of my head, probably. And it just, uh, it, was a, it was a very close call. Like if it, you know, shouldn't have been rushing a shot like that. Really wanted to get the shot, didn't have the time. Uh, and thank God I took my eye off the eyepiece. Well, luckily for Andrew, Kenneth, and John, they all survived the car crash. And then quite possibly the most baddest thing ever happens when a combine comes barreling down on the hearse crashing into it and flipping it over. I mean, screw all the CGI fights in Endgame. This is a real piece of farm equipment that they ran into a hearse. How is that not awesome? I think we fucked up that combine pretty badly. Andrew then escapes the combine, only to be then surrounded by Kathy and all the other possessed girls. They give him an option. Kiss. Or Chi-Chi. So what the heck is Chi-Chi in this world? Because I know it's slang for something else, but... I need clarification what you really intended here. But it was from that joke. You know, that's that, that, that um, joke, death or Chi-Chi, right? Fuck, <laughs> this, this setup is something like, this guy, get, guy gets captured by a tribe, this like, you know, South American tribe or an African tribe or something. And it's like death or Chi-Chi. You have a choice. You could have that or Chi-Chi. Okay, so they're offered death or Chi-Chi. Again, what the hell is Chi-Chi? We're going to strip you naked and we're going to, you know, fuck you up the ass and we're going to, you know, it goes on <laughs> it gets worse and worse and worse. And they choose death. Because, yes, yeah. But first, Chi-Chi. Chi-Chi! <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I had to explain this to the actress. So, because, you know, inevitably, it was, just a, it was just a line. Just a line. It was like an, it was like an Easter egg for, you know, people of like us who grew up with dads who told them jokes like this, you know, and, uh, and, and the, uh, and the young actress said, well, what's Chi Chi? I'm like, oh God, how do I explain this? <laughs> and I, 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 I did it all, you know, in obviously in euphemisms, I didn't tell her the you know, whole thing, but, but I think I got it. I got her head around it. I think I implied it enough that she was like, okay, we're not going to really talk about what this is but i think i get it <laughs> all right well that paints a pretty dark portrait for andrew's fate especially since the giver of the chi chi is this girl who looks several years older named becky luckily for andrew he's able to escape using some wrestling techniques that carla demonstrated earlier now at the good twins grave 
Andrew's about to pull out the weed when he's sucked underground and again comes face to face with the evil twin in his lair, I suppose we should call it. So what was it like shooting this scene in such a cramped space? And what was it like designing the twins look? And what, I mean, the, 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 on the final day of shooting, we were absolutely exhausted, beyond exhausted. We had been up all night. We had been shooting nights for weeks. And we were in that, I think it was a garage. And we were shooting that whole sequence with, um, uh, with the grave, inside the grave interior which I love, it looks so good. We use this lens, Andrew, um, you actually put it in front of the lens. It's, it's uh, called the Mesmerizer. And it was an, anim basically it was an anamorphic lens that was attached in front of a normal lens um, to create a distorted effect. So you would embrace the anamorphic quality, but you could also, it had a gear ring and you could put it on a zoom motor you could put it on so you could rotate it slowly. And we use that to great effect in the whole opening sequence, but also when you're inside the grave, when you're seeing them distorted, it's this mesmerizer. And it's, it's a pretty amazing sequence, that, that whole thing. Yeah, the one, the one thing about that sequence that bugs me is that there was a better version of it that Nickelodeon killed. Uh, and initially, the, the, the treatment of when you actually see the evil twin where it was supposed to be, uh, which will sound familiar to a lot of people out there, was, it was supposed to be an old man's head on a fetus. It was, it was, you're in the womb and it's a fetus in the womb, curled up in the womb, but the face is that of an old man because the, like the, 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 you know, the creature kept aging throughout the years, but, the, but it, still, it maintained its feet. Well, of course, this was done later on by Harry Potter. You know, so and it, when I, when I, when I, when I and, and Nickelodeon said, no, that's too creepy. You got to do something else. And so I, I kind of went with something off of a Cramps album cover or something like that. Psychobilly treatment, but it was supposed to be this other thing, which would have been so cool. And I know it would have been cool because everybody commented on it when Harry Potter did it 10 years later, you know. Jesus, guys, that is truly disturbing. You know, I'm going to have to level with you here. I didn't actually watch this when it first aired. Despite my love for Halloween, I was too chicken to watch it. And you know what? Probably a good thing because I can't imagine having a kid also named Andrew being confronted by this creepy-ass monster and what you originally intended would have been very good on my psyche. Andrew age 7 couldn't handle that. Hell, Andrew age 27 can barely handle that. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew was able to fight off the evil twin, then crawl into the evil twin's coffin in a moment that must be incredibly uncomfortable for people with claustrophobia but manages to put the root into the skeleton and thus ending his reign of terror. The following morning, everyone's turned back to normal with the possessed only having a vague dreamlike memory of the events. Carl then apologized to Andrew for everything he's done. And the movie ends with a now more confident Andrew listening to Ben's stories with Kathy, whom's implied to be dating now, while Carl has embraced his inner nerd by hanging out slash playing with Hall. As we fade out, we hear the evil twins laugh one last time, effectively ending the movie with a question mark. <laughs> Overall, the movie is really good, and it's since become a Halloween tradition for me since I first saw the movie in 2011. You know, it's not without its flaws, of course, but when you combine the production design, the acting, the writing, the directing, and just everything about it, it's much better than a Nickelodeon TV movie of the week had any right to be. 
Now, as to whether parents were rightfully angry about how scary it is, well, I'll get more into that in part two, but just quickly summarizing my feelings. Yeah, it is pretty scary, especially when you consider the fact that this came on after an hour of Rugrats Halloween special, so a couple notches more on the intensometer, but that also makes it a couple notches cooler, in my opinion. Ultimately, I think what really makes this movie so good is the fact that Peter, Bob, John, and the rest of the team took it so seriously, and their effort shines through, revealing a really solid Halloween kids movie that, sadly, us 90s kids didn't get to really enjoy too much. I'm convinced had this been able to air year after year after year, this would be Nickelodeon's answer to Halloween Town or any of the Scooby-Doo movies that were being made at the time. Now, before we wrap up part one, are there any particular moments from the production that we didn't cover that you think fondly back on? I think it was the last day that we shot. There was, for whatever reason, we shot through fall. I remember, I remember being in the woods and, and watching the trees you know, the, the leaves change and then ultimately fall off. It was so special. Like, the, the, I, to this day, I, I retain that image of, like, life in the woods, you know? It was really gorgeous. And then at the end, I guess the water had risen. There, there had been rains or whatever. And the, and the woods was flooded. Remember that? And, and I, at the time, I was driving a Ford Bronco. And I, I remember taking everybody, like, from the last day, taking people out for drives through the, through the swamp. It, <laughs> I mean, like, like, like the water, like, like over the over the bottom of the door of my Ford Bronco, like, like, you know, bushwhacking, sliding around in the in the swamp. It was really a blast, you know. And and the, the whole crew got like booted out of one motel and escorted by the police to another after they had a moonshine party, you know. Yeah, there was there. <laughs> well, well, we would shoot all night, and then we'd go back, and then uh, have have a little party each night, each morning. It would be like, you know, eight in the morning. God, I would have loved to see this set gone completely off the rails with the kids drinking moonshine. Andrew passed out in the corner of the barn or something. Andrew got, didn't he, he got a little, Jace, who played Andrew, Jace Blankford, he, he wound up hanging out in the prop truck a lot. And they were and he was like, he was, he was like doing drawings on the walls of the prop truck. And it was getting, he, he was, he was being influenced a little bit by somebody not in a bad way, but he was exploring, you know, he was at that age, he was 13 and he was exploring his something. I don't know. It was, I mean, he was, I, this is not, I, I don't imply anything negative with this. It just, uh, just as a father, you know, he was, he was at an age where I think he was really enjoying it. And, and he was a precocious kid. I mean, any, any young actor who's good is precocious. Yeah. He was really good. He was. Well, I think we'll wrap up here on this note. So remember, stay tuned for part two coming later this month, where we'll discuss the backlash, banishment, and rediscovery of Crybaby Lane. Until then, just want to thank my guests for stopping on by, and we'll see you around. And there you have it, Crybaby Lane, an original movie in SNCC, and pretty scary if you ask me. But you know, it was educational, too. Chock full of valuable lessons such as, well, it's probably not a good idea to do seances in a graveyard. And you might want to be wary of people with fluorescent glowing eyes. Try not to kiss girls who have spiders in their mouths. Don't trust guys who eat handfuls of worms. And above all, always be suspicious of your siblings. I'm Melissa Joan Hart, a.k.a. Sabrina the Teenage Witch, wishing you a happy hunting and a howling Halloween. Stay tuned for more Halloween Weekend Snick coming up next.